You know, one of the things that I absolutely um, love about the Old Testament is, uh, it's counterintuitive, but it teaches me things about Jesus that I would never know about him if I stuck to the New Testament alone. Everyone wants to write the Old Testament off, but you know, it's there that I really get that deeper picture of who he is. And uh, if you were to read through the New Testament, the, the, the most popular name that Jesus is given by the writers is Christ or Messiah, all right? But interestingly, that is not what Jesus likes to call himself. I mean, he does, but that is not his favorite designation for himself. You want to guess what it is? Eduardo. No, no, you're right. It, Yeah, this guy got it up front. It's son of man. Jesus' favorite thing to call himself is son of man. Let me give you one example this morning, okay? I'm going to show you this passage, and it comes from the time when Jesus has been arrested. He's been, he's been dragged before this, this, this kangaroo court, and uh, they are trying to trump up false charges on him so they can be rid of him. And, and he's standing there. He's pleading the fifth. Jesus is before him, and they can't break him. They can't whittle him down. He's not taking the bait. Their testimony doesn't line up, and, and they're losing it. They're losing it right before their eyes. They're their opportunity to kill him. And so the high priest is there, the high priest of the temple. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks these words. Are you the Christ? Because that's what people like to call him, right? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And for the first time in this whole thing, Jesus finally opens his mouth. You got it. And not only that, look what he does. He goes farther. He says, not only that, you will see who? Me. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it says that this, the high priest tore his robes. Because it's natural response, isn't it, when someone says they're the Son of Man? He tears his clothes. He says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. Question. Does it honestly sound all that blasphemous to you? You have heard this blasphemy What do you think? And all of them there condemned him is worthy of death. Here's my question. What is going on that gets the high priest so hot and bothered that he starts shredding his clothes? And these are nice clothes, mind you, all right? He starts ripping his clothes, condemning blasphemy. What is it about this phrase, son of man, this title, this name, that Jesus likes to call himself that's getting him so deep and leaving us kind of going what's the big deal it's that name that I want to talk to you about today and part of the reason is because I'm convinced that if you're going to devote yourself and your life to following a man at some stage you got to come to terms with how he thinks about himself agreed So what does it mean to follow a man who calls himself the Son of Man? How does he think about himself and what does that mean? 
Now, this whole thing, this whole phrase, son of man, it's rooted in the Old Testament prophets. Because remember, it's in the Old Testament that we really find things out about Jesus that we would never know, never know about the depth of who he is if we stayed in the New Testament alone. And the single most important place, yet not the only place, to unearth what Jesus is getting at when he uses a phrase like this is in Daniel chapter 7. One of these ancient prophets of old, and I want you to turn there with me today. We're going to look at this, and we're going to look at this vision that this ancient prophet named Daniel is given, and how this pertains to Jesus, and what is going on, and why it is so significant. Daniel chapter 7. All right, this is what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, because of course we all know when that was, Daniel had a dream, and visions of sugar plums passed through his head. Uh, Sorry, that was lame. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Now pause for a moment. We got a picture of four animals, four beasts, right? Four four monsters. It kind of sounds already like some like mad scientist experiment gone awry, doesn't it? Do you notice though how these beasts they kind of look like animals? Some kind of strange animal hybrid, but these animals are acting like humans. You see that? This is significant. Keep it in mind. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told the words we never want to hear a bear say in our proximity, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back had four wings like those of a bird, and the beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, because like the others weren't, right? It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot. Keep that in mind. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had... Ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like that of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. If the animal beast creatures weren't bad enough, now their horns are growing eyes and even speaking, right? And even the smallest among them is boasting. But it's not all he sees. As I looked, thrones were set in place. 
It'll be curious to see who takes them. And it says the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Now the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like, there it is, right? One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Crazy stuff, right? Crazy vision stuff. And my, my experience is that so many people, when they come and they read these, these crazy visions of Daniel, they start obsessing so much with trying to identify with who each character is in some kind of end times milieu that they fundamentally miss what the basic story is all about. They miss what's basically going on at its root, which is so significant for this right here. Now, um, disclaimer, today might get a bit heady because what I need to do is take you on a journey through understanding and unpacking what Daniel is thinking about, looking at, and seeing, and what that means to him when he sees one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days because the stuff that 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 lies behind that is absolutely essential for coming to terms with who Jesus is and how he thinks about himself when he says right here son of man so we've got a universal sign here at fellowship of faith all right if it starts getting too heady coming on too strong too fast We're going to practice. Do this with me. Take your hands and go like this. Now put them like this. Okay, now go like that. So at any time through today, if you make that sign, all right, I will know. Back off a little bit. And here's how I want you to think about this. You ever, uh, anyone here cook? Okay, good, because I don't and invite me over, all right? Um, Typical stove, it has four burners, right? And you know how sometimes when you're making a, a, like, like, like an elaborate meal, a several course meal, you kind of got to get stuff going on different burners. And it isn't until you sit down to eat that you pull everything off the burners together. It's kind of how we've got to go through this. I'm going to give you four burners worth of information. And what it's going to require you to do is take <coughs> one course and we'll look at it, we'll prepare it, but then we'll have to set it on a burner. 
for a second and move on and let them all start to simmer and bring it back together in the end. All right? So let's start here. Burner one, the Genesis connection. Now, if you go way back to the beginning of Genesis, you see God creating the heavens and the earth, and it's marvelous, and it's wondrous, and it's filled with variety and diversity, and God's imprint is upon it. And there is a theme running through that God made it, and it's good. And the cycle keeps going and going. God is making creation, and he's making it good. And on the sixth day, he comes to at least what God considers the pinnacle of his creation. And it says this. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them do what? Rule. Rule over what? Fish, birds, livestock. While we're at it, whole earth and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God did it. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. He said, get it on. Fill the earth. Well, it's originally in Hebrew. I can translate it how I want. (laughs) Fill the earth and subdue it. And here it is again. Do what? Over what? Fish, birds, every living creature that moves along the ground. Now go back to Daniel 7. What do you see a vision of? Four animals, four beasts, four monster-like creatures, and what are they doing? Ruling. Who's supposed to rule? Something is out of sorts here in Daniel 7. Do you see it? Now, I'd like you to take that and put that over here on burner number one. Set it to low. All right? Let's move to burner number two. This isn't the first time, Daniel 7, I mean, that we see animals ruling. Because there's another Genesis connection as well. Another time when we see an animal, if you will, ruling. This time, it's called a serpent or maybe a dragon. And compared to Adam and Eve, he's wise. They're naive. He's cunning. They're, you know? Two punk kids roaming the garden going, what do we do? You know? The rulers have not matured yet, if you will. And there is this creature, this serpent, this snake, this dragon, who is cunning and wise and powerful and magnificent. And he comes and he starts speaking into their ears. He starts, he starts becoming the puppet master behind the kings. He starts pulling their strings and guiding them. He starts planting ideas and manipulating them. And before you know it, the king, Adam, and the queen, Eve, who are supposed to rule under the regency of God, are now listening to the creatures instead. They're listening to the animal, the beast. They're listening to him They're deceived. They're gullible. They buy into it. And they're culpable too. Animals win. People fail. And God comes into this and he intervenes. 
And if you're following the storyline of Genesis 3 when this happens, you'll come to this passage. And it says that the Lord God comes to this serpent, this, this snake, this dragon, and he says to him, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. The serpent is brought down to the dust, right? The serpent and all he represents is brought down low. God casts it down and he says, I'm going to put enmity. It means hostility, warfare, conflict. I'm going to put it between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. All right? God comes, he casts the serpent down. He says, there is going to be hostility here and out between you and the line of my king and queen who is supposed to reign. And someday, somehow, it's going to come to some kind of climax where he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay? Now, Adam, right? We know him by name. Adam is nothing more than a Hebrew word that simply means man. Now, when I say man, I don't mean male man. What I mean is Hugh man. You got to kind of think Star Trek man. You know, boldly go where no man has gone before yet. There's chicks all over the ship, right? It means human, all right? So, Adam means human. Now, who is going to crush the head? Adam? Eve? Eve? No, one of their offspring, right? So it could be argued that a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve is going to come along and crush the serpent's head. You with me? So if it's a son of Adam and we just translate his name, who's going to come along? A son of man. And what is he going to do? He is going to crush the head of evil. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to crush the head of the beast. Bring it to Daniel 7. What do we see? Four beasts. And they're ruling. But what else are they doing? Did he catch it? Read through the animals, and what are they doing in Daniel 7? It's like they're on a rampage, right? They're trampling all around, devouring flesh and, and, and trampling underfoot, right? They're victims, the people of God in their path. Something is backwards here because isn't it the serpent, the beast that's supposed to have his head crushed? Yet in Daniel 7, you see the exact opposite happening. It's the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Adam, the sons of men who are having their heads crushed by the beast. Put that on burner two and set it to low. Now let's go to to burner three because biblical writers, later biblical writers start having a field day with this. Let me show you this one psalm. It comes from Psalm chapter 8, all right? And, and, and the psalmist is kind of contemplating, why does God give a rip about insignificant specks of carbon like you and me? I mean, 
You ever like see these like totally phenomenal, like Hubble like pictures, Hubble's telescope pictures of the galaxy and stuff like that? You start to see, you, 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 you listen to theoretical physicists or mathematicians and you start to see how big, how vast, how wonderful, how complex this universe is. And you start to go, what are we in the midst of it? I mean, I mean, who are we really? These, these insignificant creatures on this backwater planet. Right? It's logical, isn't it? Have you ever thought things like these? I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, God, the moons and the stars. What is humanity, man, that you're mindful of him? Their offspring, the son of man. There we see the phrase, right? That you care for him. You made him lower than the, the heavenly beings. But you Genesis won him. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything where? Under his feet. Flocks, herds, and what? Beasts. See where this is going. Now take that and put it over here and low on burner three. The phrase son of man comes up 182 times in the Bible. You can count them sometime if you're bored. Of those 182, 82 are in the New Testament. Okay? All of them arguably in reference to Jesus. Leaving for an Low-level math guy like me, some easy computations to do, 100 in the Old Testament. Of those 100 references, 93 are found in one place. It's another prophet. He is a contemporary of Daniel. And he's another one who also gets crazy visions. He sees the throne room of God, the Ancient of Days, and wild stuff happening. And he sees something else, too. He sees these things, these these celestial beings, these creatures that also look like animals and beasts in attendance to God. God's servants, God's angels, God's, God's court, if you will. And do you know what God calls this prophet? His name is Ezekiel, by the way. Son of man. And here's the idea behind it. Ezekiel sees what this psalmist sees. Not just the grandeurs of space and creation, but the grandeur of the throne room of heaven itself. And he sees these creatures, these animal-like creatures that just are glorious to behold. But you know what God does? He comes to Ezekiel instead. And he goes, hey, son of man. You know, in other words, hey, no, not my angel, dude. Son of man, human. Yeah, you, yeah, hey, you. You're my servant too. And I've also got a job for you. And that job has far more weight in import than any of these angelic animal-like creatures that are surrounding my throne. Now that's what we got cooking on burner four. So take burner one, Genesis chapter one. Take burner two, Genesis chapter three. Take burner three, Psalm chapter 8, and take burner 4 in Ezekiel, and let's bring them all back to Daniel. And what does Daniel see? He has this vision of four beasts, four animal-like creatures 
that are raging out of control. They are evil and they represent everything that is evil. They are trampling and tearing down. They are devouring and victimizing. And the people of God are powerless in their presence. And later on, you can read in in Daniel chapter 7, that God even says the people of God will have to endure. They will be handed over to these beasts for a time, or double time, or maybe just part of a time, to endure, to suffer. But Daniel looks again and he sees something else. He sees that there still is one on the throne, and he's called the Ancient of Days. That even though these beasts rage, there is still the Ancient of Days. Now, by this point we know he's not talking about real animals, right? It's what these animals represent. The kingdoms and governments and cultures of this world that trample about and rage out of control. Rage all over the people of God. Devouring and victimizing. Tearing them down. Where's your God? Your God is stupid. Your God is powerless. Even the smallest of horns on them boasted. Where's your God? Your God is great. You say, where is he? Look at who's who's in control. Look at who's raging about. You follow him, you follow a fairy tale. Your God is dead. Daniel sees something else as well. That even though this is what's going on down here, there is still something up here. And he sees an ancient of days who is still in control. And one approaches this ancient of days, who's not like an animal, but who's like something else, a son of man, a human. Remember the game, which of these things is not like the other? A human, a son of man. And it says he approaches him, and he's given glory, honor, dominion, might. The nations worship him. And it's a kingdom that will never end. Enter Jesus. And what does he call himself? Son of man. What is Jesus saying here? I am the son of Adam. I am the son of Adam who was mandated in the beginning to rule. Who am I? I am the son of Adam, the son of man, the offspring of Adam who will strike the serpent's head. Who am I? I'm a son of Adam, a human, made lower than the angels, but elevated and raised with grandeur and glory and honor. Who am I? I'm the son of Adam, the son of man. I'm the one who can approach the ancient of days. Who am I? Son of Adam. I'm the son of man. 
given all authority and glory and sovereign power to whom all nations will worship, the ruler of a kingdom that will never end. Now, four days we got Christmas, right? It is about a time when God became a human. It is about a time when God became a human and was born in a manger into darkness and poverty when kingdoms raged about as they do today. Why did God become a human? Why was God born Jesus? Now we're often told it's because, well, by being a human, he can identify with us, right? He knows what it feels like. He knows what the struggle is like. And so he can identify us. And that's true. We're told that by becoming a human, he can pay the price for humanity's sin, right? He can pay the debt that humanity owes. And that's true. But we stop there, don't we? Because God became human for another reason as well. So he could rule. Because it was to humanity that the mandate was given in the beginning to rule. To strike down evil. To crush the beast's head. And Jesus comes and he's born in this manger as a son of man. To rule. To rule in place of humanity. To rule in place of you and me who seem to do just a wonderful job on a daily basis of royally screwing it up. To rule. And instead, in place of people like you and me who have proven over and over and over again how unworthy we are of the task. And that's what Son of Man means. See, Christmas is about Jesus coming down into hopelessness. Into a world where beasts and monsters prowl and rage out of control. Before whom we see completely unable or powerless to control or correct And he comes down into it and says, do not be afraid. The king's here now, the son of man. It's why writers like John will say, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome him.